It's difficult to think about what accolade John Edgar Wideman hasn't received. He's the second African-American to win a Rhodes Scholarship. He's gone on to win a MacArthur Genius Fellowship and has won the Penn Faulkner Award twice. And the list goes on. Awards matter, sure, but what really seems to matter to John Edgar Wideman is the work. He's published 20 books, including his latest, You Made Me Love You, Selected Stories, 1981 to 2018. Composed of 57 timeless stories drawn from his past acclaimed collections, You Made Me Love You is as relevant today as ever. The stories show us about African-American culture and life, but also about what defines us all and what can draw us closer together. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to John Edgar Wideman about his latest book, You Made Me Love You, Selected Stories, 1981 to 2018. The dedication of this book is to all those coming up after, stay in the struggle. And that idea rather sets the tone for me in terms of the collection. I mean, this is a very comprehensive, but also very varied collection of stories spanning some, oh, 37 years. Um, In 1981, you were 40 years old. And in 2018, and still today, you are writing. But what has, looking back through this compilation, shown you about this struggle that you referred to and those coming up after who must stay in it in today in 2021. I didn't dwell on the fact that this book was uh, a compilation of 40 odd years or 50 odd years of work. What's been most striking to me and most, uh, I guess, invigorating to me is when someone picks out a story, usually that they like, sometimes maybe they don't like so much, uh, and speaks to me about it. And that forces me to go back in a very detailed way, maybe even read the story again. Or maybe I've heard the title of the story from them, and then I go read it, and then I talk to the person. But it's the it's the life that each piece ideally has in it that's most uh, interesting to me, most compelling to me, and a reason to read again and think again. I like the title of this book so much, and I've had this earworm for days now. It's this the Al Jolson song, You Made Me Love You. The next line <laughs> is, I didn't want to do it. When I look at the rest of the lyrics of that song, it's so revealing to me, for someone maybe who's reading too much into it. Uh, you made me happy sometimes, you made me glad, but there were times you made me feel so bad, you made me cry. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, that's just so perfect. It's the perfect soundtrack for this book. Uh, <laughs> but where did well, this... Well, good for you. Good for you. That's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's an ideal reaction yeah. from my point of view. I, it don't, with a title or with any line of a story... Uh, one doesn't want to hammer it into another person's consciousness. It should, ideally, it slides in. It sneaks in. Uh, music is a little less subtle sometimes um, because music is so strong. It, it, it evokes such a strong, or can evoke such a strong immediate reaction. Uh, but my sense that um, when I 
thought about putting together a big group of stories that would be representative of uh, my career so far. I thought about my country. I thought about the ambivalence I feel and how red hot mad I can be sometimes and, and, and darkly disappointed at certain epochs and events and personalities. On the other hand, it's my country. And so there's that melancholy music, that tune mm -hmm. that sort of reminds me always that like it or not, like it or leave it, hey, this is where I'm from. This is my, it's my music. It's my nation. The section in this very wide-ranging collection that's titled Briefs, that's from your 2010 collection, has a couple stories I want to ask you about. And I should say that um, Briefs, uh, this is a collection of very short pieces. I believe they're described as microfictions, or some people call them flash fiction or sudden fiction. But the point of that work to begin with is not to, I think, categorize things or label things, but to present stories. And there are some very serious stories with these very concentrated tensions. And then there are other works with these sorts of observations given over to us in a way um, that are very distilled. So there's one titled Review. And you write, you don't have to be very smart to write a review of a book of short stories all you need to say is that some stories in the book are better than others. And it goes on. And it feels like a bit of a, of a like you're sort of panning <laughs> reviewers. But then there's this long final sentence that goes like this. Readers will be less favorably disposed toward your review if you say all stories in the collection suck or all the stories are great because your readers, based upon their previous experience of reading, or not reading books of stories, and reading or not reading reviews of books of stories, and based upon their previous experience of life in general, which is, after all, what stories are about, will have concluded that some things are better than other things, and this being the case for stories as well. Why stir up readers by suggesting you think your experience of reading stories, or your experience of life in general, is different than your reader's experience? and maybe you believe you're smarter than they are. Whereas everybody knows you don't need to be born all that smart to write a review of a book of stories or write the stories either. That's one of these very brief stories in this collection, but I just thought, look at this whole world that's in this very long final sentence of really a paragraph-length story. What was your mindset it's really not about a reviewer. It's about a writer. What was your mindset about that story? Well, yes, it's it's specifically from the point of view of a writer, maybe. But uh, I think more so, uh, and more so about just being around in the world and how uh, trying to make sense of that of any experience, day by day or over the years, uh, certain things pop up and they seem right, and other things pop up and you suppress them because 
it'll make you feel so well, or you think, oh, I was wrong then, or I got that wrong, or why the hell do I even want to remember that or bring it up to myself or anybody else? So that's how we, I think, the mind works as we go through our days. And whatever, the preacher in me, the philosopher in me, the the daydreamer in me, I'm always, I always attempt, or I like to attempt, to have the reader share the writing experience, the experience of a writer, my particular experience, not because writing is better than dancing or singing or teaching kids in a classroom, but because writing is what I do, what I love, and I think that's something I know an awful lot about. So when I, I can share with other people, and writing is always for me, and, 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 and well, it's always for me a window, and I peer through it, and then I peer around at what I see under it, and I want folks who pick up my stories to have that sort of experience. And so sometimes I talk about exactly what that experience is like for me. You do so in another story called Now You See It, where you write, you come to a space on the page and can't read farther because in this space, space resides everything the writer does not know, pretends to know, cannot know, the face of God, for instance, the emptiness and fullness of time, perfect silence, voices of the dead returning, all crammed, clamoring into this white space between two words or space dividing block of print on a page and it goes on and your narrator takes us on a journey in this one sentence this remarkable story one sentence about this writer as you say and of course not just about the writer as you say and not just about writing i feel like these briefs uh these stories in the collect in the part of the collection from briefs are emblematic of many other things that you do with writing stories that may not be in that classic mode we're used to because of an imprint that's established early on in our reading lives, like in a, in a high school English class where we're used to a certain conventional way of receiving a short story, say. But you do something that's that's different. And I think this silence that this story brings up is very important in your work. Many of your subjects are silent, but also because in silence is where we find reflection and introspection anyway. But how do you consider this idea of silence in 2021? I mean, I can't help but think of today of virtual schooling and how there might be yet more untapped silences we can't even begin to fathom, but that we know holds so much strife and so much confusion, but also so many loud elements that we need to pay attention to. I mean, silence is really heavy in your stories. So I keep thinking about, as I've reread this book uh, and reread uh, your stories that I've encountered over the years and had them right before me in one place, the power of silence and in so many different ways in your book. How do you consider it? Well, probably somewhere in the book, in one of those stories, I think I recall citing 
something I learned about uh, Native American culture. And it probably isn't even about Native American culture. It's something that I probably read in James Fenimore Cooper, who was not an anthropologist exactly, but who had a fascination with what was different and what was strange and appealing about the Native peoples that Americans were uh, intruding upon in the 18th, 19th century. Anyway, Cooper has a, has one, I think, Indian, his, his, a representation of an Indian anyway, make the point that when someone speaks in a council ring or council fire, the next person should never speak immediately as soon as that voice ends. Because to speak immediately suggests a lack of respect. If the previous speaker had something important to say and you as a listener were touched, then damn it, you know, let it sink in. Consider it a moment. Think deeply about it. Let it let it have its effect. Listen. Listen deeply. To butt right in and put your two cents next to the other person's two cents is the height of impoliteness and also a way of dissing, dissing, if you will, the, the other person's voice. So I, I read that somewhere. Maybe I read it when I was a teenager. Maybe I read it when I was teaching Cooper in college. But that, that's always stuck with me, not because it seems some in, information uh, completely new, but because this alleged uh, practice among um, alleged Native Americans rang true. It made sense to me. And I realized that uh, part of what I had learned growing up as an African-American kid in African-American communities and rooms full of people who were telling stories is that you give a certain deference, young people, everybody, to other speakers. You don't just jump right in, particularly when it's a younger to old, a younger to an elder situation, you sit there a minute, you listen. And of course, in the church that I went to as a child, uh, the preacher spoke for a lot, very long time. And there were uh, choreographed places where the congregation could enter. But uh, you listened for a sermon, to a sermon, for maybe a good long time, longer than you wanted to sit there. Want to get out of there? Get the hell out of there! You know, you want to scratch your ass or go out in the sunshine, but you sat there, and that information, those words, that maybe even dancing, semi-dancing up on the uh, 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 rostrum on the podium at the where the preacher was standing, you know, it had a chance to sink in. And when you maybe at the end of the, ser- the sermon, when it was a good sermon, the people around you uh, almost ex- exhaled collectively. And then it was time for the choir to sing, for the other preacher to chime in with a prayer, etc., etc. But I think that ritual incorporated some of the things that I found in uh, the the Cooper, James Fenmore Cooper story about Indian culture. So anyway, uh, I think we all have 
an idea, or at least a, con- a pretty good conception, that some things take our breath away. Some things make us speechless. You know, those two, those two idioms are part of the common language. Something makes you speechless, speechless, it takes your breath away. And I think that's all both those phrases, those idioms mean uh, you're, you're, you're taken aback, you're taken inside yourself, you are dealing with something much larger than you are, and you better, you better pay attention, you better step back and listen. So silence for me contains a lot of those things. In, uh, we see this again in a 1992 collection uh, in the story, in the collection called All Stories Are True. And the story is newborn thrown in trash and dies. It's told from the point of view of the baby uh, who's been thrown down a laundry chute by a 12-year-old mother. Um, and the title of the story refers to the headline of a metro section newspaper piece. And the baby says, that from the baby's point of view, here's the story, as grateful as I am to have my story made public, you should be able to understand why I feel cheated, why the newspaper account is not enough, why I want my voice to be part of the record. The awful silence is not truly broken until we speak for ourselves. One chance to speak was snatched away. Then I didn't cry out as I plunged through the darkness. I didn't know any better, too busy thinking to myself, this is how it is, this is how it is, how it is, accustoming myself to what it seemed life brings, what life is, spinning, tumbling, a breathless rush, terror, exhilaration, and wonder, wondering, is this it? Am I doing it right? So as you're speaking, I'm thinking about this idea of silence and what even this baby narrator knows to be true about when we should be silent, when we can be silent, and when the silence gets to be too much. And I was thinking in rereading the story about the stories we we read every day in the newspaper that um, are real stories about these opportunities, as this narrator says, that are snatched away. There's so much happening in the silences of your stories and even in the silences for these characters that are contemplating what is happening to them in the moment. And it makes me think about the newspaper stories we read too often today about other sorts of deaths of young people. Um, so there's such a timelessness and such a relevance in your work in 2021. It's it's really an undeniable thing. By, by coincidence, you, you you brought up newspapers, and there newspapers mentioned in the story, so it's not totally coincidentally uh, a, coincid- a coincidence. But um, my experience of writing that story uh, is quite. Uh, quite clear to uh, clear to me. Um, I mean, it, in the sense that it comes back in in detail. Uh, I have read in the newspaper more than one story about children being uh, thrown away, and one in New York City thrown down in a garbage chute. It, it just got me. It got to me. A, that that young person or that young soul was silenced. 
uh, and B, just the, the absolute uh, horror that we had created a society where people like me seem to have no option but to act in such a desperate, violent, destructive way. Uh, you know, things aren't only done by bad people. We're, and anything that an individual does is possibly something one would do, you or me, anybody. So a combination of uh, compassion, if you will, and fear and anger uh, silenced me. I didn't know what to do about these babies that were showing up in trash pits. And I carried that around for a while. And it silenced me that those things I had been reading about in the newspaper and on TV. And so I sat down one morning, as I usually do, I write every morning, and I had to address that silence. And I kind of wanted to say, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm sorry uh, to the young soul that, uh, or the young souls that were being lost. And so I addressed the story to that silence. And I felt immense, immense silence around me as I wrote the story. And I didn't want the voice as I created it to cease because in some odd, maybe superstitious way, uh, I was hoping against hope, hoping desperately that maybe my words would carry to some place where that lost soul could hear me. And that is not a kind of, that wouldn't, I hope, be a kind of sentimentality or superstition because when I was trying to speak into that silence, speak to that child who didn't get a chance to grow up, who was in that sense lost, I, I didn't feel, I felt uh, connected. I felt that there is no story that any of us has that really is very much different than the story of a child who lives only two minutes or two seconds. Because an 80-year-old life, a two-second life, a 50-year-old life, 67-year-old life, how much, how long are any of those in terms of the immensity of time and space and the cosmos. So, you know, we're all brothers and sisters in a place or places that we don't understand. Uh, so, hey, I was talking to a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, uh, the ancestors, when I was asking and telling, trying to tell what it felt like to speak to this person.
person who had been thrown in the trash to die. I feel like the same question goes right into your expansive research and your writing about the criminal justice system, incarceration of black men, um, and how recent events, even predating uh, 2018 or 1992, um, come into play in your writing, where, as we saw last summer, almost a whole year ago now, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, that people were not silent. You know, the, the, the baby in the story says, in my opinion, my death will serve no purpose. And that must be a terrible thing to think about as you are breathing your last. And then I think about the protests where people were not silenced in the name of someone who may have had the same thought that this baby had. Um, and we watch this playing out on the television, the ways in which these protesters were not silenced. I mean, in spite of some, some best efforts, <laughs> um, their, their voices still uh, rang out in those dark nights, night after night. Uh, so to me, it's, it seems like something very timeless and very important to be thinking about speaking for um, a marginalized voice. I mean, that's, this is as marginalized as, as one can be, perhaps, a baby that only gets to live a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. um, there's something in this in the same story that I that I was just reading it again in uh, in 2021. I was just stopped in my tracks. The baby's referring to these floors going down each of the floors of the of the laundry chute, and says that there's a a presidente of the floors, and says el presidente often performs on TV. We can watch him jog, golf, fish, travel, lie, preen, and mutilate the language. But these activities are not his job. Uh, there was just this, that one section of that story where I had to flip back over and double check, was this 1992 or, or was this uh, <laughs> 2017 or 20? And so it's just, uh, it's very interesting to me, these things that reemerge. It's, uh, and so it goes to this idea that the more specific the detail is, the more universal and the more timeless it will be for readers well down the road. In your work, like the stories from the collection American Histories from 2018, your characters are Frederick Douglass or John Brown. What is it that writing fiction from the vantage point of real historical figures, real figures, what do they help you convey to your readers or, or understand yourself that you then want to share with your readers? In a way, that's an easy question. Uh, I read a lot and I've always been uh, the kind of reader who gets off 
who believes what he reads uh, and kind of lives what he reads. Uh, when I was very, very young, it was, you know, like, hey, I can fly. If I'm reading a super or reading a Superman comic book, I'm flying, man. I'm, you know, I can get out of this small house. I can, uh, I got my brothers and sisters are, well, I love them, but boy, I wish I'd shut up sometime and not bug me. And so I'm reading a book and, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a free pass somewhere else and different world, not home. Uh, Homewood was okay. And mm-hmm. that was my, my, uh, 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 hunting ground, and uh, but it was nice to go wherever Dickens took me, or wherever a book of golden, the golden book of myths took me to Greek islands, to gods, to uh, so I've always been the kind of reader for whom imaginative worlds that other folks inhabit and write about are real to me. Those those were worlds are quite near, real, quite equal. And so I've, I've been blessed with the ability, I think, and the imagination to pass back and forth. And I've never, I've never changed. Uh, you know, in a real bad day, I might want to drink, but I also am grateful if I have a good book I'm reading. A uh, good story I'm reading, and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed in a lifetime. When you look back on a book like this, like you made me love you, uh, and you you consider the new generation of readers, I know that you have a new generation of readers who will pick up this book, who maybe have never read a story by John Edgar Wideman. For those young readers just coming up, just themselves getting lost in these in these books, what is what's something you really want them to understand about reading re- reading your book in particular? Ideally, that they could write a book or write a story. And even if they don't write one while they're reading one, uh, they're making up one. Uh, and that's a power. That's a power. You know, re- reading for me is something that exists midway between writer and reader. And uh, to, to have young folk who pick up my new book and find out that uh, uh, there, there's a meeting ground in there. They can, they can become acquainted or encounter uh, someone they don't know, never maybe heard of before. That's great. That's what, that's what art is about. You know, we, we can travel, space travel, time travel, all that, great stuff uh, that supposedly uh, only happens in cartoons, maybe, <laughs> or uh, in sci-fi, but we can do that. You can do it sitting on your behind in your room, even on the beach uh, or on a park bench, 
And isn't that a wonder? So in that sense, if it happens, if, so, if, if a younger person experiences that reading, uh, you made me a story and you made me love you, uh, maybe they become a fan, not simply of Weidman, but of, you know, the act of reading. That's what I would like to have my work sell, the experience, the act of reading, the, the, the art that goes into it, the art that if you're a careful reader, you can uh, extrapolate from it and perhaps imitate and admire and finally uh, maybe even try to emulate. That's all, all that's good, all that's good stuff. Professor Weidman, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, you sound as if you are a very good reader, a great reader. And uh, thank goodness for you and others like you. And peace. peace. Peace to you. I'm so honored and so thrilled to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. John Edgar Weidman is the author of You Made Me Love You, Selected Stories, 1981 to 2018. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.